Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. And the title of our series has been Jesus is Better. How many believe Jesus is better? Amen. Jesus is better, right? (laughs) And if you've been following long, then you know that the writer of the book of Hebrews, the audience in which he's writing to, primarily a Jewish audience, but I'm sure there are some Gentiles that were mixed mixed in there as well. What I mean by that are non-Jewish folks that are mixed in there as well. And uh, just really, they were just struggling believers, struggling Christians. They were having a hard time in their faith. Some of them were starting to drift from the faith. Some of them were saying, I don't know if this is worth it. Some of them were struggling in their faith. And so he's writing to kind of encourage them in that struggle. And, uh, and with that being the case, again, the writer has, has tried to, to to take some things from the Old Testament, some things that, that they would know, a primarily Jewish audience, that they would recognize from their heritage of the law and the Old Testament and the prophets and Moses and the priesthood and the temple, trying to connect that to how that fits and connects with Jesus, all the while showing how Jesus is a better uh, it, it is better than those Old Testament um, kind of rhythms and examples and, and, um, and, and, and religious rituals saying that those were a foreshadow of what was fulfilled in Jesus. They're a foreshadow was what is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything else that, that they had been a part of, they weren't losing that. But rather in Jesus, they were finding a, a greater fulfillment of those things. It's more better and complete. And that's been the strategy of the writer of Hebrews up to this point. He's showing how Jesus brings a better and fuller revelation than previously had, how Jesus is better than a prophet. He's better than a mere angel. He's even better than Moses. Whoa, how do you say that? But he's, he's pointing that, showing that. And he's given himself the task. Last week we talked about how, how Jesus was a better high priest. Not after the order of Aaron, uh, that was a foreshadow, but after the order of Melchizedek. And, uh, and again, I, I'm not going to re-preach that message, but I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that because it provides a great foundation of understanding how Jesus takes on the role of both king and priest and brings that together in such a way that he is a better mediator between us and the Father. Really exciting things. And so the, the point is, is, is he was making this point, and he's sharing about the priesthood in Melchizedek. And as we pointed out last week, all of a sudden, the end of chapter 5 and, and then the majority of chapter 6, it's like the writer of Hebrews stops and takes a detour. He, he, he's, he's talking about the priesthood, and, and, and then all of a sudden he says, but, but you all ought to know about this, but you, you, you don't. You, you ought to, you should, have, you should know this already, but, but you don't. And he challenges them with some things by saying, you know why you don't know all of this? Because some of you are dull of hearing. I'm not going to get into that today, but you can see it in the end of chapter 5. That's what he's saying. You, you've gotten dull in your hearing. 
You, you haven't gone deep in your faith. And similar to, to what Paul had written about milk and solid food, he challenges them and says, listen, there are some reasons why you can't understand these things because you, you haven't gone deep enough. And as a result of that, some of you are drifting away in your faith. Some of you are starting to drift back in to trusting in the religion of Judaism rather than in the Jesus that Judaism points to. You've started to allow the currents of the culture to push you aside and the struggles and the temptation and the trials and you've started to allow that to impact your faith and you're in danger. And he gets into chapter 6 of talking about apostasy. You're in danger of going so far that you can't come back. I'm not going to get into all of that today, but that is the detour that he takes in chapter 5 and in, in the beginning parts of chapter 6. Is listen, you ought to know this stuff, but you don't. In Houston, there's a problem, and you're in danger of, of drifting. And then all of a sudden, he, he kind of gets to this place where after this stern warning, he, 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 he assures his readers that they can have a confident hope. How many are glad that he doesn't end with a stern warning? Right? But he returns to this confident hope that they can hang on to. And in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says this, Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, so even though I've been harsh, even though I've been warning you, even though I got stern with you, we, we really don't believe it applies to you. You're like, are you backpedaling? What's going on? No, I think he's, he's kind of doing what, what sometimes parents do. You know, hey, I'm warning you, but I love you. I'm warning you, but I love you. I'm warning you, but I see a different future for you. Right? We're, 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 we're confident that you're meant for better things. Friends, can I encourage you today? You're meant for better things. You're meant for better things. God's got better things planned, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you've shown love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. And he's encouraging them. He, he's turning it around and encouraging them and saying, listen, you started out well. You're encouraging others. You've been loving others. I know it's been hard. I know there's been persecution. I know there's been struggles. I know there's been trials. But don't let it push you away from your faith and your confident hope in Jesus Christ. Don't let those things get in the way and cause you to drift away from this relationship with Jesus. And then he says this, then you will not become spiritually dull or indifferent. He's going back to what he talked about at the end of, of chapter 5. You'll not become dull and indifferent. Instead, you'll follow the examples of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. And what he's about to do is he's about to establish some anchors again. 
some anchors. You, we talked about several weeks ago about this idea of drifting, and this is a theme that he comes back to over and over again. Again, we talked about this idea of God wanting us to enter into the rest and the promises that he has, but sometimes we don't because of unbelief. And here he says, sometimes we don't because we get dull of hearing. Sometimes we don't because we drift into indifference. We start to move away, but all friends don't because you need some anchors in your life. You you need some anchors to hold on to. So I want to talk about these anchors, but I want to stop for a moment and talk about this confident hope that we have. He, he, he said earlier about this confident hope, make certain of what the hope, uh, what you hope for will come true. What kind of hope is he talking about? Up here on Lake Erie, there's a lot of people that like to fish. There's a lot of optimists when it comes to fishing. Kind of, kind of like the fisherman who, who uh, his neighbor saw him out fishing and said, how's it going? And he said, better. And so his neighbor said, well, how was it better? And he said, well, you know, last week I went out for four hours and didn't catch anything. This week I went out for three and had the same result. What, what kind of hope are we talking about? Don't confuse optimism with biblical hope. Biblical hope is different than being optimistic. It's different than a worldly optimism. It's different than just having a, as we hear today, positivity. A positivity, a, 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 a kind of a, a, a worldly hope that says, well, I hope, but I don't know, I kind of hope. Biblical hope is different than that. Biblical hope is, is based on the certainty of truth, not upon a cheery disposition. It doesn't just look on the bright side. It doesn't just rest in, in what we would consider to be fantasy or worthless. But a valid hope must be based on truth and certainty. And that's the kind of hope that the Bible says that we can have in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of hope that God promises. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a powerful passage right there. What that says is, is that, that, that the God of hope, his hope, when we have a confident hope, fills us with joy and peace. That joy and peace that we have comes from a certainty and a trust that we have in God no matter what. And it's that hope that then overflows to others. A confidence. A confidence in the certainty of God's promises. Do you have that kind of hope today? Is in your faith that you have that kind of hope today? And the author of Hebrews, again, writing to a people who have been facing hardship and suffering and persecution because of their faith and, and being tempted to abandon Christianity and maybe re return to Judaism. And he's urging them and, and saying, persevere, focus in, and here's why. Because you can have a confident hope in Jesus Christ. You can have a confident hope, a biblical hope, not just a cheerful disposition but an attitude of joy based on the promises of God and as he's going to point out about the character of God because God does not lie. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, here it is. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Whoo! 
Somebody needs to underline that in the Bible, in your, in your, your copy of God's Word. Somebody needs to highlight that, put a note. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters, oh, he's about to get back to the priesthood here. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a, there's a metaphor in here, the metaphor of the anchor. You don't see this in any other uh, place except right here. And instead of going an anchor, maybe going down to the, to the, to the ocean and the depths of the, the ocean floor, the depths of the Lake Erie Great, Great Lakes floor, instead this anchor reaches high into the heavens and anchors itself behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus is. This is an anchor that is in Jesus, not something that is in the ground. It doesn't go down, but it's an anchor that goes up and is, and is anchored in Jesus Christ and anchored in the priesthood that we talked about last week. And the first anchor that we are given regarding this hope or this certainty of salvation and, and eternal life with Jesus is the anchor that his promises have never failed. His promises have never failed. And he uses Abraham as an example. If we, we look in, in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 12, we see that he's going to begin to use Abraham as, as, his, as his picture, as exhibit A, so to speak. Hebrews 6, 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Well, who, is the, who are those? Who are those that have, have gone ahead? Who are those who, who, who are we are to imitate? And exhibit A is Abraham. That's what follows. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater than him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Exhibit A. Who, who do we look to? Who is our example in this? How, how do I know, writer of Hebrews, that what you are saying is true? He says, well, you, you believe in the Old Testament. You came out of Judaism. Let me take you right back to the father of our faith, Abraham. Let me show you what Abraham did. Let me show you the kind of hope that Abraham had. And the hope that Abraham had was based on the fact that God's promises have never failed. And you see that in his life. In fact, Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul called Abraham the father of all who believe. And then later added, in hope against hope, he believed. In hope against hope, he believed. Not a cheery disposition, but a certainty that God was able to do what he promised. The writer of Hebrews goes back to Genesis chapter 22, 16 and 17. Again, where Abraham displayed this ultimate faith in God by his willingness to sacrifice the son of promise, Isaac, on the altar. That when God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to go up on the mountain where I show you. And I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice to me. Abraham obeyed without wavering. God swore by himself to bless Abraham when he did that multiply his descendants. And the author applies this to the heir of the promise, namely to believers in Christ. Let's review Abraham's story for a moment. 
Abraham's life is a, a story of both initiate, God initiating and promising and Abraham responding by faith. God initiates and invites and Abraham responds. Can I just break faith down really quickly to something very simple? It, it's simply that. It's simply that God initiates and invites us to take a step in following him. And faith is simply responding to God's invitation. God initiates salvation by, by coming and illuminating the fact that we're sinners and that he loves us and, and that he invites us to receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And, and faith is saying, I believe and, and, and I'm going to respond to that by asking you, Jesus, for your forgiveness and to come into my life. Faith is an, an invitation, an invitation by God who invites us into something and then us responding to him. Does that make sense? And so that was this invitation. And so God appeared while Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees and invited him to go to a land he, he did not know to pick up everything that he had, to leave family, to leave what was comfortable, to leave what he knew, to leave his inheritance, whatever, everything that would have been his, to leave all of that behind for a promise that God had made to him to go to a land he did not know. Now let me tell you something, this wasn't like it is today. All right, there wasn't like Abraham could get on the internet and he could book an Airbnb as to where he thought God was leading him to go and make sure that he had a place along the way. No, he picked up everything he owned, put it on a caravan with tents and brought people along and there they went. Okay, God invited, I'm just gonna follow. God invited, I'm gonna follow and do what he says and so here we go and I'm leaving everybody I know and they don't even know where I'm at because I got no cell phone so I can't be texting them and telling them where I'm going and I can't be posted no pictures on Facebook or Instagram so they see how things are going. No, when he left, he left. There was no keeping up with email. There was no Skype. There was, there was no FaceTime. He just simply followed God. Why? Because he trusted that the certainty of God were found in the promises of God. He left all he knew and he, and he followed and moved 100 miles away and there were, there were unknown hardships that he would encounter. Would the people of this new land that he was coming into, would they be friendly? Could you provide adequately for the family? Could I, can I provide for my family? How, what, what about a language? What if I don't speak their language? How am I going to do that if I don't speak their language? And there's not a, a real estate office to help you get set up. But yet Abram, at that time as Abram, obeyed. And God promised to multiply Abram, making him the father of a multitude. Do you know that the, the name Abram itself means exalted father? Can you imagine going into a land where people didn't know you and they say, hey, what's your name? And he says, Abram. Oh, well, how many kids do you have? How many children do you have? None. <laughs> Wait a minute, your name is exalted father and you have no kids? No, but God says I will. But God says I will. God promises that. And here they are, getting up in years, Sarah Barron, and in spite of all of this and moving away, Abraham follows God. 
And then, if that wasn't enough, adding insult to injury, God doesn't answer right away, doesn't provide him with a child right away, doesn't do any of that. At 99 years old, God appears to him without any child, without, without, without Isaac, without any of this coming, and says, you know what, you're no longer going to just be called Abram, exalted father, you're going to be Abraham, father of a multitude. Abraham, the father of a multitude. I mean, that, that's kind of like God, like, like you're, you're a bald man, and your parents name you Harry. And then you change your name to bushy-haired man. I mean, that's just like crazy, right? But, but he followed, he followed God, and, 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 and he's trusting in the promises of God. He's trusting in God's promises. Now, when he died at 175 years old, he had fathered several nations through Ishmael's descendants. And then he had a, uh, picked up a, another uh, wife after Sarah had died, Keturah. And through her, uh, they, they had some, some sons and some, some promises. But through Isaac, the son of promise, the one that God said was the son of promise, this Isaac, he, he, all that he had at 175 years old was not a multitude. Isaac didn't have a multitude of children. Isaac just simply had 15-year-old twin boys, Jacob and Esau. He owned no real estate at that point when he died. The only thing he owned was a cave in Machpelah that he had bought after his wife Sarah had died in order to bury her in. He owned no land. He had nothing. And yet Hebrews chapter eleven ten, which we haven't even gotten to, says, no, no. He died in faith looking, to, looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, now, he's using example A, exhibit A, because God, God is faithful to his promises whether we see them fulfilled or not. God is faithful to keeping his promises. God keeps his promises, and God kept his promises to Abraham. And though Abraham didn't see it, God had validated it through history. And, and both physically and spiritually, there are descendants that number the stars in the heavens. Why? Because God keeps his promises. You see, hope is anchored in the fact that God keeps his word. There's never been anyone who trusted in God's promises and was disappointed in the end. God may delay the visible answers to his promises because he always answers in his time and not ours. We may not see the answer until we're in heaven, but I'm going to tell you, friends, ultimately, God is trustworthy to keep his word. He's promised us salvation to all who have faith in Christ. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. You can count that as true. You can take it to the bank, <laughs> as the phrase goes. Paul believed this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. Our, our first hope, anchor our hope, is that God keeps his promises. His promises have never failed. Secondly, God has the power to bring about what he has promised. Hebrews 6:17 because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heir of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Friends, God has the power to bring about what he has promised. In this verse, there's a lot in here. But here's the emphasis. The emphasis is God does what he desires to do. If God says he's going to do something, it doesn't matter how impossible it looks. God has the power to do what he says he can do. Does anybody believe that this morning? 
In verse 17, the Greek word desiring here is connected with the noun purpose. And it points to, the, to a deliberate exercise of volition. It means that God purposed to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. And, and, and what he's referring to specifically is what we talked about last week, that God purposed for Jesus Christ to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That that was something that God had purposed. That was part of the plan of God. It was not a reaction of God. It was not a response to something. All the way along, it was God's purpose to do that through Jesus Christ. And he did it for his name. Again, going back to the, 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 uh, the illustration of, of Abraham, the overall pattern of Abraham's life was perseverance. It was trusting. It was perseverance. But within that, there were times when Abraham struggled in his faith. There were times when Abraham was both faithful and there were times when Abraham was faithless. You know what I'm talking about? There were times like he was faithful when he left Ur of the Chaldees and followed and went to a land he didn't know. And then when there was a famine in that land and he went off to Egypt, there was a time when he was faithless because he says to his wife, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. Don't say you're my wife. There, there were times where, where Abram was, was, was faithful. I believe what God's going to do. I believe he can do it. And then there are times when he's faithless. Well, maybe we need to help God out a little bit. And, and uh, Sarah says, here's my servant, Hagar. And, and he says, well, you know what? You might be right. Why don't we try that? And you have Ishmael. Nevertheless, as much as there were times in which it looked as if Abram or Abraham was about to undo with his faithlessness what God had promised, God remained faithful through it all. So even though Abram was, Abraham was faithless at times, it didn't stop from God accomplishing his purpose through him in the times when he was faithful. Because it's not about us, it's about God. The hope isn't in us. If it was in me and my ability to always be faithful, I can tell you, friends, it would never come about. Because it's not about me. It's about God, who is able to keep his promises in spite of me. <laughs> oh, doesn't that give somebody hope this morning? That, that in spite of your weakness, in spite of the times when you are faithless, that God is still able to act and accomplish what he has promised. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that, that when I struggle with faithlessness, it doesn't stop your power or your ability from doing what you have promised. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Right? Thank you, Jesus. There were times it looked as if Abraham was about to undo it. He was about to undo the promise. Here, tell him you're my, you're my sister. And then it looks like Pharaoh's going to take Sarah as his wife. And then what's going to happen to Sarah? How is God going to bring about his promise through Sarah? Abraham, what are you doing? And God says, no, 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 no. Don't touch that woman. She's a married woman. Don't touch that woman. And God acts on behalf. That's what God does. God has the power, the power to bring about what he has promised. He is an anchor. And when we anchor ourselves in God, who has the power to bring about his purpose, this is our hope. 
How can God do that? Is it just his power? No. Number three, we can anchor ourselves in his character, in his person, his character, because his person and character, as I referenced earlier, are incapable of lying. Look at verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, for we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. The author states the, the obvious, it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because if God to, would, would lie, if he lied, it would deny the very nature of who he is as the God of truth, as the, the Lord of all truth, and his word as the word of truth. God does not lie. If he said that Jesus made purification for our sins, you can take it to the bank. Jesus had made purification for our sins. If he says that he entered behind the veil and went into the Holy of Holies and offered the blood upon the mercy seat so that in Christ you and I might be able to enter into the very throne room of grace. Friends, you can take it to the bank because God does not lie. It's true. We're all prone at times to bend the truth, aren't we? We, we have this insecurity at times where we want to appear a certain way. We want something to look a certain way. And so occasionally, I think if we're all honest, there's occasional times when, when asked or when caught or when in a situation, we, we might fudge the truth just a little bit to make ourselves look a little better. You know what I'm saying? We might find a way to kind of justify what we did, not make it look so bad, because it's not, it's not that bad, maybe overlooking something a little bit when it, when it suits our purposes, and yet if we're challenged and, and said, well, you're, you lied, you're a liar. No, I'm not. And yet we all know that in the human nature, there's a propensity for us at times to, to do this, but not in the character of God. Not in the character of God. It's impossible for God to lie. He's never lied in all eternity. And when we doubt his promises, especially his promise of salvation for those who believe in Jesus Christ, then in effect we are saying, God, you're a liar. You're lying. Jesus couldn't have done that. God, you're lying. 1 John 5.10. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed in the testimony that God has given about his son. It's right there. That when we don't believe that, that Jesus Christ has the ability to forgive us of our sin, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, then basically we say, God, you're lying. Your promises are not true. You're a liar. But friends, because God does not lie, our hope is, is secure. Our salvation is secure because God is incapable of lying. Fourthly, the fourth anchor is his pledge. That is his oath that backs up the promise. Look at verses 16 and 17. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and put an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Now, verse 16 is a human illustration. 
making oaths and, and, and swearing by, by something important, uh, you know, whatever it is about an oath. That's something that humans do. That's not something that, that, that God does. We do that when we want to make sure that, you know, that, 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 that somebody believes in us. You know, we, 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 we typically kind of want to sure, make sure somebody knows that we're serious. We say, you know what, I, I swear on the stack of Bibles that what I'm saying is true. You know what I'm saying? Some people, I swear on my mother's grave, right? We, we make these oaths. We, make these, we, we swear these things. Why? Because we're trying to get people to believe us, right? We want, we want to know people. So I'm serious. I'm serious. I want you to believe me. I'm not lying. I, I'm serious. But God doesn't lie. So why is God? Why does God have to have to swear an oath on something? Why did Why did He have to do that from a from a human perspective? You know, we. I love this one. Cross my heart. Hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Right? That's a human thing to do. And yet, at this point, when God was making this promise to Abraham. When he, was, when he was sharing with Abraham what was happening, and, 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 and he, he, he's doing this, he, 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 he takes on a human thing and says, you know what, I, I swear on an oath. I, 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 I swear on an oath. He didn't have to do that, but, but he took an oath. And there's some judicial language in here as well. Again, when, when people are having a dispute, they... They swear under penalty of perjury or, or that kind of thing. It's a, and, and, and in some way, when God was dealing with Abraham and making certain promises, he, he takes an oath. And what does he do? It says he swears by himself and by his name. Why? Because there is nothing higher. God does not lie. There is, there is nothing higher that he might have sworn to. And again, it's unnecessary for God to, to swear this kind of an oath. And what's he doing? He, what's he doing? He, he wants us as human beings, as people, he wants us to know, I'm serious about this. That what I promise will come to pass. I want you to know the seriousness of this. I don't do it for my sake because I don't lie. And I'm not going to lie. But you know what? I'm doing it for your sake. I'm doing it for you. And the anchor of hope that we find is in this, that God who cannot lie interposes this, this promises with an oath and with a pledge. It's kind of like the, the double guarantee. He, he, he is double guarantee. These two unchangeable things, both his promise and his oath. Those are the two unchangeable things. His promise and his oath. His word and that he does not lie. And the oath that he took. And he does not go back on his oath. He fulfilled everything through Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. And verse 19 tells us that it is sure and it is steadfast. Sure and steadfast. It is sure and steadfast. You can lean on it. You can rely on it on it. It is something that can anchor you when the winds are blowing and you're struggling in your faith and you're struggling to, to can I make it? Is this really true? When, when things are coming at you, God, I don't understand. In the midst of the understanding, you can anchor yourself in the truth of God's word that in Jesus Christ, there is an anchor for your soul. There's an anchor for your soul. 
Because God does not lie. He said it. And he swore by it. And he fulfilled it through Jesus Christ. Oh, because it's in the person of Jesus, the anchors of God, that we can take refuge. We can take refuge in times of the storm. So what did Abraham do? He did two things. He believed the promises by faith, and then he persevered by hanging on to them. So friends, let me encourage you. Some of you are struggling in your faith. You're you're struggling in your faith. Maybe you know of somebody who believed in the Lord but is struggling in their faith. Let me encourage you that that it is not just simply the initial, I I believe and and I'm putting my, my hope in you, but it's also in holding on, persevering and holding on to those promises. Some of you need to to get back to holding on to some of those promises. God does not lie. His word does not return void. You got to hang on to those promises. Don't give up. Don't give up. I'm going back to verse 19 again. For we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And here's what happens. It enters behind, in the inner sanctuary, behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer is moving back to this idea of the priesthood once again, teaching us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ is the one that we look to. Oh, audience, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to trusting in a mediator like the the family of the Levites who who they themselves were, were, were flawed and had to offer sacrifices for themselves in weakness. Oh no, we've got a great high priest that does not have weakness, that has not sinned, who enters behind the curtain and for us has provided uh, uh, on the mercy seat the blood that allows us to enter in and draw near to God. To have confidence to draw near to God. In Jesus Christ we can flee. And in Jesus Christ we can take refuge. He's the pioneer. The forerunner. The one leading the way. And where he has gone, you and I can now go to That when he said it is finished, the curtain tore in two because he went behind and offered the sacrifice, opening up the way that you and I can now enter in to that place called the Holy of Holies. We can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. We have the, the, we can enter in to his very presence. Don't settle simply for religion that does a lot of, 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 of things but does not enter in to the presence of God. We have access to the presence of God. We can draw near to God. Because of this relationship that we have with him. That that is what Jesus came to do. To restore the relationship. And allow us to be in the very presence of God. So friends if you are struggling. 
Don't pull away, but draw near to the presence of Jesus. Draw near to the presence of God. Draw near and allow him to be the anchor for your soul. Just like Abraham, we can place our hope and our faith in the certainty of his promises and in the person of Jesus Christ and hang on to them and don't let go. Worship team, will you come? One author I read said it this way. This is one author I read. I love what, what he wrote. He said, what Christ bought for us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our wills as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills because we want to hold fast. What he bought for us was not the canceling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. So I appeal to you today, I appeal to you today with with what is rooted in verse 18, flee to God for refuge. Flee to God for refuge. James said, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I want to encourage you today, let's draw near to God. Let's draw near to God. Let's draw near to God through, through Jesus Christ. Turn from the fleeting and superficial and self-deprecating hopes of the world. Friends, and put your hope in Jesus. There is nothing and there is no one like Jesus as a refuge and as our rock of hope, take refuge in Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Anchor your soul in Jesus. Anchor your faith in Jesus. And don't let the currents of this present world and this present culture allow you to drift away from the one who came and gave his life to bring you near. The currents want to drift you away. But Jesus has come to draw you near. And he says, take refuge in me. Take refuge in me. Take refuge in me. Draw in close to me. Come in close to my presence. Oh, don't stay away. Come on, I invite you. I invite you to come in. I invite you to come near. I invite you to come near. And you, you can have that hope and that confidence come near. Mm, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. We draw near to you, Lord. Our anchor for our soul. Father, I pray right now for those that have been drifting. I pray, God, for those that have been drifting, who find themselves not where they need to be with you, away and not close. Oh, Jesus, we hang on to your promises. Thank you that your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We draw near. We come and we draw near. We come and we find forgiveness in you. We come and we find refuge in you. We come and we find a healing for our broken hearts in you. We draw near to you. We draw near to you for you do not lie. 
Your promises are yes and amen and can be trusted. We hang on. We hang on. If you're struggling in your faith, and you say, Pastor, I've just been struggling in my faith. I've been struggling to hang on. I just want to pray for you today. Will you slip up your hand? I've been struggling in my faith. If you're online, will you let us know so we can pray specifically for you? I've been struggling and I needed I need Jesus right now. Lord, I just thank you for those who raise their hands right now, Jesus. I just I just pray. Lord, that you will just encourage them in their faith. I pray, Jesus, you'll just strengthen their hands as they hang on to your promises. Oh, God, they're yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you're our great high priest. We come to you for help in our time of need. We draw near to the very throne room of grace. We draw near to you in your presence right now. We draw near. Strengthen, oh, God. Strengthen, oh, God. Strengthen, oh, God, we pray. Strengthen, oh God, we pray. We come and we draw near. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, perhaps he's inviting you right now to to put your faith in him. He's inviting you to, 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 to come and find forgiveness in him, to come and put your faith. If that's you, if you feel that God is inviting you to come and give your life to him, will you slip up your hand right now, Pastor? God's inviting me, and I, I want to respond. I want to respond. Anybody at all? Pastor, Pastor, I need to respond to Jesus today. Oh, if that's you, just call out, Jesus, I come right now, I believe. Forgive me. Forgive me. I believe. I need your salvation. Just cry out to the Lord. He will answer you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.